The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture is from John chapter 17, verses 1 through 19. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. The word of God for the people of God. There's something every one of us is hungry for, though we may not know how to put it into words. And that something is glory. We human beings are hungry for glory. The word glory is a word that means weightiness or heaviness or significance or importance. The reality is we're not meant to live trite and shallow and insignificant lives. We're hungry for glory. There's something in us that won't be satisfied unless we're caught up in moments of significance and importance and weightiness. And that's one reason why sports fans love March Madness. 
Now, I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but for some people who are sports fans, this weekend is sort of like the weekend of all the year. These four days of the beginning of the college basketball tournament. I had one friend who literally every year just takes this Thursday and Friday off for vacation. He works really hard. He's not a, a, a slacker of a guy. But he's like, man, this is important enough to me. I'm spending two vacation days because all I want to do is just sit in front of my TV and watch basketball games all day. And some of you can relate, right? And the reason is because something happens in this season where you see a lot of sort of glorious, surprising moments. There's always a Cinderella story. There's always a team that comes from behind and wins in an unexpected way. There's always things that happen in this tournament that sort of give you a taste of the kind of thing that we're hungry for, right? That moment that feels like a really powerful, impressive moment. A few years ago, when we were meeting over at Westside Middle School still, um, there was a family that came to check their kids into Cormdale Kids on a Sunday morning, and one of our staff members was like, hang on, I recognize that name. Turns out the reason that person recognized this family's name is because this man had been featured on the cover of Sports Illustrated because he played college basketball for one of these small schools, and he had a moment in March Madness where he hit a game-winning three-pointer that was an amazing moment, and it was such a big sports moment, he landed on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And now he was just working a job in Omaha like the rest of you. Like he had that moment in his story and in his life, and it was awesome, and now he's just checking his kids into Cormdale Kids like you do on a Sunday. And that's the challenge of... All the sort of little moments of glory in our lives is that they're amazing in the moment, but then they sort of fade into the background. And here we are just doing our thing, living our lives. Because we're hungry for glory, we try to make things in our lives glorious, or we try to sustain a sense of importance and weightiness from various things in our lives. And so we give things weight. We give them significance and expect them to hold the glory that we Desire. That's why for some of you, the relationships in your life are so vested with meaning and significance. You pile so much weight on them because you think, hey, in these relationships or in this meaningful romance is where I'm going to find weightiness and glory. That's why for some of us, our jobs become not just vocations that we enjoy and glorify God in, but things that we invest with significance and weight and importance beyond what they're capable of bearing because we're trying to find in them glory. That's why for some of us, our kids become our pathway to glory, and we're convinced if we just invest in them and raise them and give them all the opportunities they need, that somehow their success and their flourishing will fill up the places in our lives where we need glory. But none of these things can bear the weight of glory that we put on them. There's only one person in the universe weighty enough to sustain our need and our hunger for glory, and that is Jesus Christ. Only his glory is weighty enough to actually fulfill us. And this morning we come to John chapter 17, where we meet Jesus at prayer. You and I get to listen in as our Savior Jesus prays for us. And it's a wonderful text it's a powerful text. It's an important text. We're going to take it in two parts. We'll do part one of John 17 this week and part two next week, by the way. I do have a bunch more of these scripture journals. And so if you'd like one, you can come see me after the, the service. And I'd love to give you one as we head into the Easter season and continue our study of the gospel of John. But here's the fascinating question this text makes me ask. 
Why is Jesus in this moment praying these things out loud? We know from the rest of Scripture that Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place to pray, that he had a communion with God that was in secret and in quiet and where he just went alone to pray. So why in this moment is he praying not just out loud, but in the presence of his disciples where they can hear and observe and where John can write down and record for us what Jesus is saying? Jesus himself gives us the answer in John 17, verse 13. Look at what he says to the Father. These things I speak in the world, that they, the disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is speaking these things, praying out loud, not for his benefit, but for yours and mine, so that we can overhear what he's praying and have joy. Remember what Jesus said last week, in this world you will have trouble, tribulation, Hardship. So what is it that can bring us peace and joy and strength and comfort in the midst of trouble? Well, this prayer can. And there's one primary theme woven throughout the whole prayer, and it's the theme of glory. Jesus is saying, if you are my disciple, living in a troubled world, there's one thing you need to sustain you and ground you and anchor you. One thing that you need to give ballast to your life, and that is you need to be reminded of who I am. You need to be reminded of my glory. And so as Jesus prays to his Father in the presence of his disciples, the theme of glory is very pronounced and present as you'll see. And so this morning we're going to see the glory of Christ in four ways. We're going to see the glory of Christ in his person, the glory of Christ in his work, the glory of Christ in his people, and the glory of Christ in his word. Let's look first of all then at the glory of Christ in his person. Chapter 17 of John begins this way. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So right here at the beginning of the prayer, we see there are two persons named. There's an interaction between father and and son, and yet there's a sharing of glory between the two. The son asks for glory from the father. Father, glorify your son. And the son seeks to give glory to the father, that the son may glorify you. And this hints at the relationship that's made even more explicit in verses four and five, where Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, friends, listen, the Lord Jesus Christ did not begin to exist when he was born in a manger in Bethlehem. He dwelt in glory in the Father's own presence before the world existed. This is a massive and dramatic and glorious claim. Jesus is saying, Father, restore me to the glory I had with you before the world even was. John Calvin writes, This is a remarkable passage which teaches us that Christ is not a God who has been newly contrived or who has existed only for a time. For if his glory was eternal, he also has always been. At the same time, a distinction between the person of Christ and the person of the Father is here expressed. 
In other words, what we're immersed into in Jesus' prayer here in John 17 is the glory of the triune God. Christ himself says he has always existed. His glory has always been. And yet there's a distinction between the person of Christ and the person of the Father. When we speak of Christ, we are speaking of the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. And yet we're also speaking of one who is distinct from the Father. So we're going to get into some deep Trinitarian water here, okay? The word father and son in this prayer name a certain kind of relationship, don't they? We can see from the words Jesus uses that Jesus is speaking to his father and that he himself is the son of the father. And these words themselves are important because they establish, they speak to a certain kind of relationship. Matthew Barrett says it this way, to be a son is to be generated from a father. This is the essence of sonship. It is the fundamental characteristic that distinguishes a son from a father. Generation communicates that a son shares the nature of his father and at the same time that he is distinct from his father. Otherwise, a father need not be called a father and a son need not be called a son. The biblical names give away the person's relations to one another. The way Scripture names the persons of the Trinity helps us understand the relations they have to one another. So when we speak of Father and Son, we are speaking of eternal relationships of personhood within the Trinity. The Father is the Father because He begets the Son. The Son is the Son because He is begotten of the Father. And yet this begetting is not something that happens in time as though the Son began to exist at some point. Here's how Anselm put it 1,000 years ago. Since God is eternity, as there is nothing of eternity outside of eternity, so there is absolutely nothing of God outside of God. And as eternity upon eternity is only one eternity... So God in God is only one God. The Trinity is the doctrine of one God in three persons. And that's what Jesus pulls us into in this prayer, is the glory of his person as the one God who is also distinct from the Father. Now, when God the Son left the glory of heaven and took on human flesh... He did not leave his godness behind in heaven and become something less. Rather, he added to himself a human nature. So you are one person with one nature, a human nature. Christ is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. He is fully God and fully man. The early church fathers described the incarnation this way. Without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. Without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. Or to use mathematical language, you might say it this way. The incarnation is addition, not subtraction. The incarnation is not Jesus becoming less than what he was. It's him adding to himself a human nature. We see this 
expressed in the beautiful hymn in Philippians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, that's his pre-existent, pre-incarnate glory, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What did his emptying of himself look like? It looked like taking on humanity. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Paul in writing Philippians, John in writing the Gospel of John, and Jesus in praying this prayer wants you to understand one of the reasons you should worship Christ and revere Christ and honor Christ and obey Christ is because of the glory of his person. Who he is has weight. He is a divine being who has taken on humanity and this makes him glorious and wonderful. He is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth, as John said already. So first of all, we see the glory of Christ in his person. But then we also see the glory of Christ in his work. Look at John 17, verse 4. He says, Jesus says to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. How did Jesus glorify the Father? By accomplishing the work the Father gave him to do. And what is that work? This passage points to five things. Notice first the work of ruling, verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. This is reminiscent of the language of the Great Commission in the Gospel of Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Jesus Christ has authority over everyone and everything. In other words, part of his work is ruling and reigning as king over all. Christians are people who embrace the authority of Jesus and bow the knee to his authority. Non-Christians are those who resist the authority of Jesus and do not bow the knee to him. But whether you acknowledge his authority or not does not change the fact that he has it. Jesus has been given authority over everything by the Father. And so part of the work of Jesus is the work of ruling, reigning as a glorious king. Jesus Christ is glorious because of his work of ruling. Notice second in this passage, the work of giving. Verse 2, you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ is a giver. He has come to give eternal life to people. And that's what grace is. The language of grace is the language of gift. In other words, there's nothing you can do to earn, merit, deserve eternal life. Jesus gives it because he is a giver. And notice how he gives it, verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So Jesus gives eternal life by giving us words from the Father. And we receive eternal life by receiving those words and believing the truth that they proclaim about Jesus. Jesus is glorious because of his work of giving, his work of grace and generosity. 
Notice third in this text, the work of guarding. Verse 12, Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Friends, part of the work of Jesus is to keep us, to guard us, to preserve us. Doesn't it feel some days like it takes about all the energy you have just to hang on to the faith? Like that's about all you can muster is just the ability to hold on. In those moments are when you need to remember the glorious work of Jesus to keep you, to guard you, to hold on to you. Christ is glorious because of his work of guarding. Notice fourth in this text, the work of sending. Verse 18, as you, Father, sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus did not take on human flesh and live and die and rise from the dead so that you and I could just hang around and enjoy being Christians. Rather, he came to send his people on a mission, to send them to carry the good news of his grace and glory into the world as his ambassadors. Jesus has sent you as his representative to your neighbors, to your family, to your workplace, to your school. As the Father sent the Son, so the Son sends the church in the power of the Spirit. Christ is glorious because of his work of sending. He is the one who has commissioned us, who sends us out with meaningful work to do to live on his mission in the world. And finally, in this text, notice the work of dying. Verse 19 speaks to this. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. The word consecrate means to set apart for a holy purpose. It is used throughout the Old Testament for the offerings that are set apart to be given to the Lord. Jesus is speaking here metaphorically of his death. When he says, I consecrate myself, he's saying, for their sake, I am set apart, Father, for your purpose. And we know that purpose is his death on the cross, his substitutionary sacrifice in our place. This is really the greatest work that accomplishes, encompasses all the rest of his work. It's on the cross that we see most clearly Jesus' work of ruling. He is a crucified king who conquers his enemies through death. It's on the cross that we see most clearly Jesus' work of giving. As he gives his own life in place of his people. As he gives himself fully for us and to us. It's on the cross that we see most fully Jesus' work of guarding and keeping. Because his death purchases our full salvation. It doesn't just make our salvation possible. It makes it secure. It's on the cross that we see most clearly Jesus' work of sending. As through his death, he destroys the power of death and gives us glorious good news to proclaim to the world. We see the glory of Christ in his work. And so when we talk about Christ We sometimes speak of his person and his work. His person refers to who he is in his Trinitarian glory and beauty. His work refers to the work work he has come to do in time and space and history. And you will notice I just packed a five-point mini-sermon on his work into point two of my sermon that has four points. So that's a preacher trick. You can save that for later. We see the glory of Christ not just in his person, not just in his work, but third, in his people. Look at verses 9 and 10. 
Notice the language of glory again. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Part of what glorifies Christ is you. You bring glory to him. We bring glory to him. Notice verse 9, Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. So there are two groups in view here. There are, there's the world, and there are those whom the Father has given to Jesus. And part of your comfort and your confidence and your joy as a Christian comes from knowing that you belong to that second group. That you are one who has been given by the Father to the Son. That you're a part of His flock. You belong to His sheep. You've been called out of the world by the Father and in grace given to the Son. Does God love the world? Yes. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But not in the same particular and personal way that He loves His own. Right In the same way, I love all of you as your pastor. I do not love you in the same way that I love my kids. Right, All of us understand there are different kinds of relationships in our lives. My love for my kids is special and distinct and unique and likewise. God loves the world, but he has a special and distinct love for his people that moved him to set them apart and give them to Christ. And he wants us to know that part of our our comfort and security in this world is knowing that we belong to Christ, not by our merits, but by the Father's good work and sovereign will. The theological term for what Jesus is expressing here in verse 10 is election, the doctrine of election, that the Father has called a people out of the world and given them to Jesus. And unlike you, Jesus is not shy about election. He does not think this is a doctrine that should be taught in like 400 level seminary classes, but it's not for ordinary people. Here Jesus is praying a public prayer in front of his disciples, knowing that it's going to be recorded and broadcast to the world. And part of what Jesus says in this moment is, Father, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for these ones that you've given me. Because Jesus knows election is a source of deep comfort and assurance to the people of God. Listen. If the assurance of your salvation, if your confidence that you belong to Jesus depends upon the strength of your faith, then what happens when your faith flounders? Or when, like Peter, you fail miserably and gloriously? Or whether you start, when you start doubting and wondering and questioning, right? What happens in these moments if your assurance of salvation is grounded on the strength of your faith, then what happens in these moments is you start doubting whether you even belong to God, whether you're even one of his sheep. Listen, it's in those very moments that you're invited to lean into the doctrine of election. To remember that the Father has called you out of the world and given you to the Son. That's why the doctrine of election is in the Bible. Listen to John Calvin, that evil Calvinist. Here's what he says. The certainty of election by free grace lies in this, that the Father commits to the guardianship of his Son all whom he has elected that they may not perish, 
And this is the point to which we should turn our eyes, that we may be fully certain that we belong to the children of God. For the predestination of God is in itself hidden, but it is manifested to us in Christ alone. Here's what Calvin is saying. Don't bother worrying about what God is doing in his eternal, secret, glorious counsel to set apart a people for himself. Don't try to figure out how the sovereignty of God works in the world. God hasn't told us that. What he has told us is that if you belong to Christ, he is guarding you and keeping you because the Father has given you to the Son. That's the point, is that the doctrine of election is supposed to ground us in assurance and confidence that it's not all just up to us but that God is keeping us by his grace. And this is part of the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is seen in his person, in his work, in us, his people, whom the Father has given to him. And finally, we see the glory of Christ in his word. Notice the repetition over and over again in this passage. Verse six, they have kept your word. Verse eight, I have given them the words that you gave me. Verse 14, I have given them your word. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Notice the emphasis over and over again on the word. How could we come to know the glory of Christ at all? How could we who are finite, fallible, limited human beings ever come to know the glory of a God who is eternal, infinite, unchanging, and holy? The only way we could come to know anything about the glory of God is if he makes himself known, if he chooses to reveal himself to us. And he has done so in human words, in human language, in concepts we can understand and make sense of. That's the glorious truth of what God has done. He has sent Jesus as the word and what Jesus did when he came as the word is to proclaim God's word to us, to reveal God's message. The God of the universe has entered into human history and has revealed himself to us in human language, in words. Looking at it, verse eight, we looked at it a minute ago. Jesus says, for I have given them, the disciples, the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So notice what's happening here. Jesus gave the disciples the words the Father gave him. Keep in mind throughout the whole Gospel of John how frequently Jesus says, hey, I'm not speaking of my own initiative. I only speak what the Father tells me. Hey, if you're not listening to my words, you're not ignoring me, you're ignoring the Father. Throughout the whole Gospel, Jesus has been saying, here's what I've come to do, is just to declare what the Father has given me to declare. So he says, I gave them the words that the Father gave me, they, the disciples, received them, received those words, and have come to know in truth that I came from you and have believed that you sent me. So through these words, through this message Jesus proclaimed, the disciples came to know and believe and count it as true that the Father really did send Jesus. If you want to get down to what is the core question of the gospel, what is the core question of the Christian faith, what is the question that you have to wrestle with in your own life, it's this. Did the Father send the Son? Is Jesus sent from God, or is he just a neat guy who lived a long time ago? If Jesus is sent from the Father, that changes everything. 
And so Jesus says, here's the essence of what they believed. They believed that I came from the Father, that you had sent me. That in fact, I have come into this world to do the work the Father has given me to do. Now, I don't want to get ahead to next week's sermon, but look at verse 20. Jesus goes on to pray to the Father and say, I do not ask for these only, these disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so you see the connection? Jesus spoke God's word to the disciples. The disciples believed. Jesus is sending them into the world with that same word, that same message. They are going to proclaim it, and there are others who are going to believe through their word. And that's how you got here. You got here because Jesus proclaimed the Father's word to his disciples, and because he sent them into the world, and then they proclaimed that same word to others, and they believed, and then they proclaimed that same word to others, and they believed, and that kept happening through successive generations until someone somewhere proclaimed the word to you, and you believed. And all of that brings glory to Christ because he is the substance of that word. He is the one the message is about. And so we see his glory in his word. And listen, God intends for that chain to continue through you. Right? Notice what Jesus prays. Verse 18. Sorry, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. In other words, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus says, Father, set these people apart in your truth and in your word. And now I'm sending them into the world. You get to now be a part of this very same word going forward. The same message that has come to you, the same word that Christ has made known to you through someone else and through the scriptures. Now he wants to use you to make known to others so that this glorious work can continue. You are a part of bringing glory to Jesus, not only as you belong to him, but as you are sent with the message of his word and as you carry it forward and are used by him to bring others to faith in him. Why is Jesus glorious? Because of who he is, his person. Because of the work he has accomplished, his work. Because of his people that he is gathering and that the Father has given to him. And because of his word, the glorious message of the gospel that he has proclaimed and sends us to proclaim. Friends, this is why we humble ourselves and worship Jesus. And listen, Jesus is saying to you, in a world filled with trouble, in a world where you're going to have tribulation, what you need is to know and be grounded in the glory of Christ. And so throughout this prayer, as he's talking to his father, the theme of glory is here over and over again because Jesus knows for his disciples to sustain and maintain faith in the world, the thing we have to be brought back to is the glory of Christ. That he is weightier, more significant, and more important than anything else in life, and that the more we're brought back to that, the more it anchors us and steadies us in the midst of an uncertain world. So let's pray and thank him for that now. Would you join me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you 
that you prayed for us. Thank you that we get to listen into your prayers and hear the things on your heart for your disciples. And we thank you that you know that what we need most is to see and be reminded of your glory. So we thank you this morning for the glory of your person, your divine being. Thank you for the glory of your work and all that you accomplished in your life and death. Thank you that we bring glory to you as your people, that we're part of what glorifies you. And thanks for the glory of your word, the message of the gospel that you brought and that you have given us to carry forward in the world. Father, would you set us free now from all the other false glories that we chase after, all the things that we try to make carry weight and significance in our lives? Remind us once again of the glory, the weightiness, the importance, the significance of who you are. And fill us with joy and life and courage as we're reminded of that through this word. We pray for our good and for your glory. Amen.